Hey everyone, and welcome to the South Carolina Grower Exchange Podcast. Every week, agents, specialists, and growers from around the state chat about what's happening in the field and discuss the latest crop weather, insect, disease, and weed issues, as well as timely reminders and information related to fruit and vegetable production in South Carolina. Remember, you can read weekly field updates and register for upcoming events by visiting the SC Grower blog at scgrower.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the to the next episode of South Carolina uh, Cultivate South Carolina Grower. I'm your host uh, Bruce McLean, and on this episode, you know, it's 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 getting really that time of the year that uh, you know strawberry season's right around the corner, and you know beds are getting prepped, they're getting fumigated. So, you know, everybody's getting ready for the strawberry season. Well, one thing I really wanted to, to, to maybe hit on, and it was, um, you know, something leading into the, to the first part of the, of the strawberry season. And something that, that sometimes some growers kind of um, maybe get a little lax on, or maybe they don't fully understand as far as managing the disease in the first part of the, of the season, really from, from planting up to when, you know, that spring push. And so that was the thing that we really wanted to point on, uh, you know, uh, talk about today. And so we have Dr. Guido Schnabel, and he is our uh, extension small fruits pathologist, professor extraordinaire. Um, and so the, um, you know, it should be fantastic presentation. We're going to talk about early season uh, strawberry disease management. So with that, I want to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Schnabel. Bruce, thank you so much for um, inviting me to give this talk. And yes, this is going to be a focus on early season strawberry disease management. Um, and what I'm trying to do is tell you a little bit about an integrated approach that we are recommending for strawberry producers that hope that I hope will reduce the chance of infection. That we'll do everything we can to minimize. Uh, the disease pressure when the fruit are actually ripening uh, next year. So integrated approach is, is what it's important. Um, we have to start with clean plants and that's like the key, always the key. You've got to start with clean plants. So your nursery source is gonna be important. Uh, go with a nursery source that in the past has, has provided excellent plant material. Um, you can do a little bit of sanitation yourself once the nursery, once the, the, the plants are on at your farm and you can uh, handle your strawberry plants with dips after right before you plant them. And so we're gonna talk about this a little bit more. Um, if you are a user of plug plants, uh, the recommendation is to start with the cleanest trays first and remove and destroy any leaves or stems with symptoms such as uh, wilt or necrosis, any leaf spots, any cankers on the stems, uh, while the plants are still in their trays. And do not plant any plug plants that are wilted and fail to recover quickly once watered. With regard to cutoffs, if you're a user of cutoffs, uh, apply the same sanitation as, as described above, but I strongly recommend dip treatments as well. We're going to talk about the options in a little while. In general, wash, wash hands, make, 
have the, the helpers wash their hands frequently, wash the tools frequently because diseases can spread uh, from one plant to another if you have spores all over your, your gloves and, and, and hands. So what are the uh, symptoms that you need to pay attention to? So if you have stems that look like this uh, on the picture on the left uh, with necrosis, with cankers, beginning cankers, these dark, these dark lesions that shouldn't be there on those stems. Those are the, those are the stems that you want to um, pinch off and, and destroy. Same is true for leaves. Anything that looks dead, that uh, looks necrotic, uh, pinch it off and throw it away, destroy. Especially those dark colored necrotic areas um, that have black dots on them. Those are suspicious and you don't want them to go into your fields. Um, so we talked about clean plants from the nursery source, uh, some things you can do to sanitize. Um, we'll talk about dips a little bit later. Uh, row covers. It's important to manage your row covers. Um, if you leave the row covers on for too long, the weather heats up you're creating basically a very humid and moist environment under the row covers, which would benefit um, fungal pathogens. So you want to avoid that at, at all costs if possible. Uh, with regard to infield sanitation, uh, one of the things that I'm that I'm always promoting is to uh, is, is is to pick a favorite location, pick a location that actually makes sense. If, if your strawberry field is right next to a mixed forest or a field that is overhung with canopy of large trees, that, that is a problem because um, Colotachicum acutatum, which is the causal organism of anthracnose, is present on those leaves, is present on, on oak leaves and shrubs. And the closer you are to these uh, hedges and to, to the forest land, the more likely it is for you to have problems later. Remove diseased fruits and dead foliage and follow up with a captain or thyrum application, especially if the plants are wet. If you work the plants when they're wet, uh, you're basically spreading the spores with the water that you're moving and uh, follow up application with captain or thyrum is definitely something you should do. Um, also harvest the clean plants the clean fields first and then move to problem fields later. And that would be later in the season, of course. Optimize your fungicide program for efficacy and resistance management. We're gonna talk about uh, what fungicides best to use um, in the fall and then early season uh, next year uh, in a little bit. And consider on-farm testing of disease tolerant cultivars. And that sort of, uh, one of the, the focus areas of this talk, uh, I, I want to just bounce off some ideas with regard to disease tolerant cultivars as well, that goes into planning for, for next year. Um, those are the, the likely disease problems that, that you might have here in South Carolina. Uh, the, the common diseases are Phytophthora root rot, Anthracnose fruit rot, Anthracnose crown rot, and gray mold. The not so common diseases or diseases that I just have never seen here in South Carolina would be macrophomina rot, 
um, Neopesilogiopsis disease, which is a new one. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later as well. Verticillium and Fusarium, very sporadic, not very common. But if you do have some problems, um, there are some things that you can do. And again, that has to do with culture of our choice primarily. Uh, and that's basically what this slide is all about. So if you have a problem, if you're one of the few growers who has a problem with verticillium or fusarium wilt, there are some options with regard to cultivar choice. Um, with regard to Phytophthora, there are some cultivars like uh, Portola, uh, Victor, Camino Real, and so on, that uh, are rated less susceptible than others. Uh, for Fusarium, we have a few resistant cultivars. Whether or not these cultivars are suitable to grow in South Carolina, I don't know. It's something to, to investigate, but they, they are in existence. Uh, this, by the way, is a table that is updated on an annual basis by California scientists. I've, I've written the, the source on the lower right as well, if, in case you want to keep up with this information. Uh, again, macrophomina, there are also uh, some cultivars that are less susceptible to macrophomina. So breeding programs really do everything they can to add this kind of trade to their new uh, cultivars. And it's something to really um, keep in mind. Phytophthora crown rot. Every once in a while, we see it in the fields. Uh, it may come in with the tra transplants. It may be already on the farm. It's sort of ubiquitous. Um, if you have standing water somewhere at the farm, you're, you're just destined to get Phytophthora root rot um, because the fungus uh, produces spores that sort of need standing water. Uh, that standing water serves those spores, which have a little tail on them. They serve the spores uh, to find those roots and then enter the, the plant through the roots. And if there's no standing water, there's no Phytophthora. So water management is ext extremely important. Uh, your fumigation will also help. Chlorpicrin, picchlor formulations, methane sodium are uh, highly effective. Um, if you're concerned, or if, if you have a, yeah, if you're concerned about Phytophthora because maybe your nursery source said that there was an issue, you are, uh, you have choices. Mefenoxam um, or metalaxyl are good choices for applications through the drip line. Uh, some growers do this every year, just preventatively. Other growers react more to when there's actually a, a warning. I personally would say don't do it on a regular basis because the fungus is capable of developing resistance to Ritamil Gold or to Metastar. And you don't want to um, select for resistance, in which case, in when you actually need these chemicals, they would not be effective anymore. But what you can apply that is safe from resistance development are the phosphites, such as Elliot, Phosphorol, Profite. Those are good choices, either as dips, um, but also as sprays, especially if your farm had a history of Phytophthora in, in the past, and perhaps your farm was one of the few um, that has resistant Phytophthora fungus in it, in the soil. 
uh, dip treatments. So here's something you can actively do to sort of sanitize your plants once they came with the, you know, from the from the nursery source, and and start off into a good season. This is a study from the University of Florida, and it shows on the bottom uh, the disease incidence if you were to do nothing, if you do, didn't do any um, any uh, treatment. And your disease incidence in this particular study was 16.2%. So 16.2% of the plants had disease. Um, and it becomes clear that actually some treatments, some dip treatments are highly active, highly efficacious. Those include switch, Zivion, and um, in this case, actually Topsin M uh, or Topsin 4.5 FL. But why that was, I don't know, because Topsin in general is not viewed as a uh, reliable dip treatment. Anyway, uh, you've got your non-treated control, you've got your switch, which was very good in this trial, and you've got Zivion. Zivion applied at the recommended label rate was actually very good. And if used indoors, um, so under a roof, it actually prevented disease completely. And that has something to do with Zivion still being susceptible to sunlight. If you use it in sunlight, uh, it, uh, the, the compound degrades fairly quickly and, uh, and can't perform very well. But if you do the dips under a roof um, to avoid sunlight, then actually you will, you will get much more efficacy. And we're going to talk about Zivion here in a little bit, uh, in a little bit, a little bit more. All right. This is another study. This time, this is a study that was published in a peer-reviewed journal article. And again, Zivion and Switch and Mirivus Prime in this case were superior in performance to other products. Um, natamycin is the active ingredient of Zivion. Switch. Um, is a combination product of fludioxinil and ciprodinil, and Mirivus Prime, a combination of pudiflomidophen and fludioxin, um, fludioxinil. And as you can see here on those very, very small bars, uh, disease incidence was very low uh, with Zivion, Switch, and Mirivus, whereas the untreated control had a lot of disease. So again, evidence that these products are highly active when used appropriately, appropriately um, prior to planting. Uh, and I keep talking about Zivion uh, with regard to anthracnose disease management uh, as a dip. We also tested Zivion uh, for botrytis control. Um, there's certainly evidence that it works for, for um, strawberry botrytis, but there's also strong evidence that it works against other botrytis, uh, in this case, uh, to avoid botrytis on petunia flowers. This is a study that we've done in-house. Petunia flowers are highly susceptible to botrytis. And um, uh, so they serve as a model system for us to study these products. Um, and we also expose these flowers to very high inoculum pressure, uh, so high that you wouldn't, you wouldn't find that high of inoculum pressure out in the field. But still, netamycin held up really well. 
as you can see in those top flowers, they look okay, whereas the bottom flowers are all rotten, uh, and those were the competitive products. So again, Zivion is a good product, and we all eat it every day. That might come to a surprise, but Zivion is a natural product. Uh, it's a fermentation product from a uh, bacterial pathogen. Uh, so it's a natural product. It has very low uh, risk factors, and it's being has been used for decades in cheeses and other uh, products. For example, Sargento cheese, one of my favorites, uh, has natamycin in it. If you look at the ingredients list, I'm going to blow this up a little. Ingredients say, well, there's cheddar cheese in there, uh, enzymes, and natamycin right there which is advertised as a natural mold inhibitor. So it's something that has very low uh, possibility of any risk to the applicator, to your people, to the consumer, to the strawberry plants. Um, and it is not subject to resistance development. So far, we are not aware of any fungus out there, including Botrytis, that has had the ability to uh, uh, develop resistance to this compound. So to me, that's a no-brainer. Uh, it is registered for uh, disease control as a dip in Florida, California, luckily in South Carolina, North Carolina, and in Virginia. The company at this point is not interested in registering it anywhere else uh, because of, of, of business concerns. But the more we use it, I think, uh, the more the company might be interested in registering it also in other states. The uh, diseases that it controls are manifold. Uh, there's anthracnose on the list, gray mold, black mold, powdery mildew, fusarium, charcoal rot, so rhizopus, so any of those black rots are on the label. So it has broad spectrum activity if you want to order this product, you've got to contact the DSM representative, John Farragher. His email is down here, john.farragher at dsm.com. So as of, um, uh, as of last year, you had to go through him to order this product. Now let's talk a little bit about gray mold and anthracnose. Gray mold is a disease that we can always count on. It's, it's ubiquitous, it's, it's going on weeds, it's going in on the strawberries, it's surviving old plant material, it's always there. Uh, it's just one of those, those things we have to deal with. Uh, the fungus produces <clears throat> spores on, on branches. Those branches are called conidiophores and the spores are called conidia. And as you can see on that middle picture, those spores are uh, sort of loosely attached to those branches, and they can be picked up really very easily by wind uh, and be moved throughout the orchard. Those spores are really tiny, they weigh next to nothing, and even the slightest breeze will just move them around. Uh, the other thing to know about Botrytis is it does need moisture to infect. And if it rains a long time and the temperature is suitable for infection, like in the 60s or 70s, then infection will occur. But if there's only like 
a small shower out there, it really depends on how long the moisture stays on the fruit or on the plant tissue. Um, if your calyx or the sepals on the calyx sort of reach over onto the fruit and trap the moisture, that's when the, um, the duration of the moisture is, is expanded or extended. And that's where the disease typically starts. And as you can see from this picture, uh, the disease actually started underneath this, this uh, um, sepal. So there are actually cultivars out there that you can choose if you do have consistently a gray mold problem that have what, what we call a reflexed calyx that are less susceptible to this disease. You see that on the picture, the sepals sort of like stick, stick out. They don't lie on, on the fruit, so they wouldn't trap the water very well. Now, uh, that's called the reflexed calyx or exerted sepals. They don't trap water. However, uh, some customers don't like this if it's if the architecture of the fruit is, is too extreme, but there are some cultivars that are marketed that have acceptable architecture, uh, such as Royal Royce, for example. And so that's something to, to look out for when you choose cultivars in the future. <clears throat> Pay attention to the calyx and how the sepals behave. Breeders are also aware of the botrytis problem and they also avoid fleshy overlapping flower petals that might trap moisture when, when the plants are blooming. Uh, because as you know, uh, during bloom is when most infections occur in strawberry plants. Avoid pushing the plants with nitrogen. Too much nitrogen and the berries turn soft and soft berries are highly susceptible to botrytis. Um, if the, if they're pushed too much, also the canopy becomes much denser. A dense canopy will trap the moisture as well, and it will uh, uh, be much more difficult for the moisture to be, to be um, uh, picked up by wind and, and the plants uh, take longer to, to, to uh, dry out. Um, cultivar, there are cultivar differences though. Um, most cultivars need a certain amount of nitrogen, but there are some cultivars where observations suggest that they appear to absorb more nitrogen naturally when you apply the nitrogen. That means that um, uh, the regular dose of maybe one pound or so per, per week of nitrogen might be too much. And you could actually lower that to make them more resistant to, uh, to botrytis and still get the yield you want. Um, so that's something that really justifies a little bit more research um, and, and uh, it's something we just know very little about, but observations suggest that. On the right, you've got a picture of a Botrytis strawberry that uh, re just released a whole bunch of spores. Uh, we basically created a little swirl with our fingers and it just shows you how easy it is for those spores to be picked up by a little bit of wind and, and spread all over the place. Anthracnose, very different fungus. Uh, it's called by Colototricum acutatum. And uh, in contrast to Botrytis scenario, the causal agent of gray mold, that one doesn't produce any branches with loose spores. It produces 
a spore gooey mass on the surface of the strawberry fruit. And it looks like the picture on, on, the, on the center. Uh, that spore gooey mass contains spores that look a little different from Botrytis. Botrytis, as you might recall, had these little tiny balls, uh, whereas the anthracnose uh, fungus produces these ships, a little bigger spores, and, and they look like ships. Uh, so very easy to identify under the microscope, but they're not very easy to, uh, to dislocate from that goo. It requires rain splash and rainstorms for that fungus to take off and be spread. With regard, with regard to cultivars with resistance to anthracnose, there's a lot of breeding programs making this a priority including breeding programs from NC State, USDA, University of Florida, California, Cal Poly. And they have tested, uh, they're testing on a continuous basis, but they have found some cultivars actually with resistance to anthracnose. And they're listed over here in this, in this uh, table. So here are the breeding programs and here are the, the cultivars that they have assessed. Uh, so a lot of uh, resistance as displayed in the red column. Um, however, we don't really know for sure whether those cultivars are suitable for South Carolina. I've, I've talked to some specialists here in the region and they thought that Sweet Sensation and Sweet Charlie might be something that South Carolina growers might be interested in, in, in trying. Um, and I know that some of you have uh, try to be sweet Charlie, but sweet sensation might also be something that you might want to try, uh, especially in areas where late frost is not that much of a concern, because uh, sweet sensation is one of those cultivars that blooms very early. So there are some options and, and there's more resistant cultivars coming out, um, and we have to keep an eye on that. So resistance really is something that should belong into an integrated management approach. With regard to chemicals, um, we're talking about early season disease management uh, where disease pressure is typically low. That's because there's really not any fruit to protect yet. Uh, there's few pathogens around, especially if you're, you know, if you're getting those, those clean plants in place. And typically the conditions are just not very favorable. You're getting into cooler weather. Yes, there's some moisture, but the weather is just uh, not typically not, not uh, favorable. And during those conditions, we recommend to not spray those specialty products like Luna Sensation and, uh, and uh, you know, Pistine and Maribor and these things. We are recommending to spray something that does not select for resistance, but still has efficacy against anthracnose and gray mold. And that would be your Thyram or Captan. It would be your Rovral uh, primarily. So especially products such as uh, a mixture of Captain and Kenja or a mixture of any 7-Eleven product would come in handy then later in the season, starting at bloom, when conditions are much more favorable for disease development where botrytis is, is active. Uh, so that's where you rotate um, the, the M4 plus M plus frac 7 and 11, um, and you rotate that with an M4 plus a 17, such as Cap 10 and Elevate, you rotate that with Mervis Prime and you rotate in 
uh, a M4 plus a frac three and nines, for example, Captain Inspire Super, and you can rotate in some switch. So those are options that you can rotate later in the season uh, that have very high efficacy against both botrytis and anthracnose disease. So now I want to spend a little bit of time with that new disease uh, that is called pestalochiopsis disease. Um, it's been the scare of the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, fortunately, in South Carolina, I don't think we have it yet. At least I have not witnessed it. Um, it is. It was first reported in Florida on, on strawberries in, in 1972. Pestalochiopsis at that point was considered a secondary pathogen, not really anything to be worried about. Um, but it did cause problems in Florida in 2015. The plants, the plants were stunted, as shown here on the, on the left-hand side of this picture. The plants were stunted. The crowns had orange color to them. Uh, the roots were dark and didn't develop very well. Um, but still, the pathogen or the disease was considered secondary until disease outbreaks were really causing some, some major problems in Florida primarily. And at that time, they actually had figured out that it was a variant of the, the, of the pathogen that causes, neo, that causes pestilogiopsis disease. And this variant was much more virulent, much more aggressive compared to the previous uh, fungus that caused secondary diseases here and there. So that was a much more aggressive pathogen and it caused a lot of problems in 2017, 18, 19, and 20. More than 200 acres, 200 acres of strawberry fields were destroyed. Uh, many more acres uh, uh, saw reduced yield. Um, it was still there in 2021, despite the fact that a lot of uh, different chemicals were applied. Uh, attention was, was, was very high to this disease. Uh, but those incidences were only in areas that had the disease previously. There was no more new incidents, which was good. Um, and in 2021, we did have a few farms um, that received plants from a nursery that was known to have that disease. And that farm um, had, had significant problems in, in, in Georgia. Um, but other than that, here in the South, I haven't really heard of any more problems, especially in South Carolina. Um, we were good. Now, what's this, what is this all about, this, this new and aggressive pestilogiopsis? First of all, it did come in with nursery plants. So again, clean plants are important. The fungus produces spores on, plant, on the plant surface that are spread by water splash and workers. So very similar to anthracnose disease. A disease gets really bad when the weather conditions warm up and it's rainy, very similar to anthracnose disease. And it actually does look a little bit like anthracnose, like you see on the, on the right-hand side, that is, this neopestilogiopsis disease, um, these, uh, the, uh, the black uh, color, especially if you look from afar, it, it sort of looks like an old lesion of anthracnose. It's very aggressive, uh, spreads very, very quickly. To the left is, is a typical anthracnose lesion. Uh, in the earlier stages, 
the anthracnose lesion would be pink in color. That's where the spores are being formed, uh, as I showed you on that picture earlier. But that that uh, uh, salmon salmon color uh, turns black over time, and it turns sort of into that color that you see on the right hand side. Uh, with regard to symptoms on the leaves, uh, you see necrosis on the edge that is oftentimes V-shaped. Uh, if you see those black dots on that on those uh, leaves, that's very suspicious for pestilochiopsis. Um, they're called pycnidia. From an extension bulletin out of Florida, I've got those pictures. Again, those are symptoms of pestilochiopsis stunted plants uh, with the roots affected, the crown affected. The crown looks like this on the very right, uh, reddish brown in color, very similar to Phytophthora root rot, which also would have shades of red. Uh, on the fruit, uh, it looks like this. Early stages look again like anthracnose disease. You see those, those, those uh, darker areas on the fruit that then slowly expand into a um, necrotic area. And then the spores are forming in those black pygnidia on the right-hand side. And again, this is a, an anthracnose uh, strawberry with an older lesion. Um, and you can see the similarity and it's really easy to, to, um, to misdiagnose, misdiagnose those two. But again, I haven't seen neopistillotopsis here in South Carolina. With regard to management, uh, it's very different from, from uh, anthracnose disease. Uh, and we're going to talk about the, the, the fungicide sensitivity and the difference to anthracnose disease a little bit later. But first, and for most, it's important to avoid that disease at whatever cost. So obtaining plants again from a reputable source is important. Uh, ask your suppliers if they had any problems with this disease or any other disease, anthracnose, phytophthora. They will tell you the truth because it's their reputation on the line. Um, and choose, choose a, a nursery supplier that will give you clean plants. With regard to management, that is a tough one because there is very few fungicides that are active at all. And the little bit that they do, that they do will really not uh, control the disease to an acceptable level. If you switch and Thyram and Mervis Prime and Inspire, those are all products that will reduce the disease by maybe 50%, maybe 60%, but you're still, you're still gonna see disease out there. Uh, there is no silver bullet with regard to chemicals. That's the bad news here. And it may come to really, uh, once you know that you have the disease, it may come to timing. You gotta use those things that work really effectively. Uh, you have to use them uh, more often and ahead of a rainstorm to sort of get rid of all the inoculum possible before the rainstorm hits. So timing of your fungicide application might, might become much more critical. Also, the disease or the fungus actually goes on weeds. So weed control might also be increased of increased importance as this fungus has a very, very wide host range. Uh, with regard to primary sources for pest and disease management information, um, 
As always, check out the new Southeastern Spray Guide at www.smallfruits.org. Um, we updated it for 2022. Should be on there very soon if it's not already on there. Um, also check out the My IPM smartphone app that is being served by a lot of different extension specialists to keep the information up to date. Uh, that one will help you identify your diseases. It would also help you uh, stay on top of all those active ingredients and trade names that are so confusing to handle because there's just so many of them. And uh, they, there's interactive tables in there that will help you list them according to the frac code and that will help you rotate them accordingly. Uh, also check out uh, my former students video channel with a lot of uh, movies on disease management of strawberry diseases or management of strawberry diseases, anthracnose, gray mold, um, slow motion videos on, on what the disease looks like in various stages of development. So it's a really cool resource uh, to check out. And with that, I'm just gonna give it back to Bruce. Thank you, Dr. Schnabel. They, um... Great information, yeah, and I think uh, the uh, you know it really hits on a lot of um, you know on something that 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 many growers just um, you know I hate to say kind of glaze over a little bit. It's uh, you know they they put so much emphasis on the back end of the season, but you know they're they're that on some of this you know it's control really starts at planting, and uh, you know and, and yeah and also some of the really you know really good. Um, descriptions and pictures on the on the, the new disease the neopestilosiopsis uh you know and that's um you know that I, I know that a lot of growers have uh, have a tremendous amount of amount of concern about that you know if, if it uh if it ever um you know is going to make make its way up into south carolina so if um if any questions should arise later on please reach out to uh to your local extension agent um and uh, and also, you know, um, you know, even Dr. Schnabel, and I'm sure he he would be, uh, you know, willing to to talk about uh, any of your concerns that, that you may have um, later on in the season. So, Dr. Schnabel, thank you, um, and we will, you know, tell everybody farewell. So, see you thank next. You. Thank you for having me.